Thank you for listening to a Vietnam podcast by 7 Million Bikes. We share the stories of people connected to Vietnam. My name is Neil Mackay and I'm your host. I've lived in Vietnam since 2016 and I first started this podcast to know more about the interesting people that lived in Saigon. We now talk to people from all over the world who have a Vietnam story to share. My guest today is a fellow comedian. He's a marketer and he comes from California. He's a first generation Vietnamese American. We're going to talk today about life as a comedian in Saigon, his background in marketing, and we're going to talk about his family and how they got to America. So my guest today is Matt Tran. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. <laughs> so you just told me before we started, you had a podcast as well. I did. What? I did. Tell me about your podcast. What was that about? The podcast was called Remote Ties. It's now defunct, but it's a podcast talking about remote work, how to get a remote job. This was pre-pandemic times. So it was pretty revolutionary in terms of someone really making an effort to convince companies to have their employees work from home or work anywhere in the world. And it was doing well. I, I genuinely liked it. I think a lot of people found interest in it. I found like it, you know, you do your podcast. So you know that every once in a while you'll get a random email or a random comment saying like, thank you so much. Like, you know, this, this either has like, you know, touched me in a certain way or like your advice was really solid. So it really felt like it was a strong mission. And during the time I, I genuinely felt like, okay, if I can get like a million people remote jobs, like that was like my big vision, then I would say the podcast would be a success. But then the pandemic hit and then everyone was working from home. So I was like, okay. I've done my job. I've done my it's, job. It's now one billion people yeah. are working from home. Amazing. No, that's one. It's definitely one of the best things when you get messages and emails. So if you're listening to this, please send a message. It is honestly when I wake up in the morning sometimes and you see this random email or message from someone around the world saying how much they enjoyed the podcast. There's nothing, nothing better than that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's crazy because before the pandemic as well, I remember even years ago when I lived in New Zealand, I had it in my head. Okay. The next job I go for, I'm going to negotiate that I can work from home one day a week. Because a lot of my job, I just didn't need to be in the office, you know? And But that was such a scary concept. Like, I'm going to ask to work from home one day a week. And then suddenly the pandemic hit and it's like, oh yeah, everyone worked from home, it's fine. But I think now it's gone back so quickly, it would probably still be a negotiation. Yeah, I think so. Especially in the States, there used to be this thing where people were able to just work from home, no big deal. And then now as the pandemic is... I, I would say now it's considered like post-pandemic times. Yeah, a lot of companies are asking people to come back. And then that's where that whole great resignation is happening. People are like, no, if you don't let me work here from <laughs> my home, in my pajamas, I'm quitting. Yeah. Yeah. So you are new on the comedy scene here in Saigon. You've been doing it for one year. Yeah, about one year. That is incredible. I don't know if you saw my post today. I just shared one of my Facebook memories. I was reading my Facebook memories this morning. Four years ago today, I started comedy for the first time. Wow, congratulations. Yeah, thank man. you. Let me read this out to you. I forgot that I'd written this. I was like, wow, this is what I wrote four years ago. And this made me realize like what a big deal it is to do comedy and how much it meant to me. Because I've now been doing it four years. I count all my performances. It's at 183, which... It's not huge, but it's more than one. It was like the first one was the most difficult one, right? So yeah, now doing comedy, it's not too scary. Sometimes it is, but generally, you know, I can just get up and do it. And then afterwards, I come off stage and then it's back to normal. But I remember in the beginning, like every time I came off stage, I had to like drink two or three beers immediately just to come down. I would come home that night. I couldn't get to sleep for hours because I was just so like wild and excited. Like I remember just being like, I can't believe I just did that. I just went on stage and did comedy like and it's so I kind of miss that feeling like because now it's just become so normal but that is also really cool August 7th 2018 I wrote tonight I finally ticked this off my bucket list achieved my biggest challenge did the scariest thing I've ever pushed myself to do but something I've wanted to do for a very long time and always been too terrified to do I did a stand-up set at an open mic tonight and people laughed people more than one person goal achieved it's awesome. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I was like, wow. So tell me about how did you get into comedy then? By the way, that feeling of validation 
from an audience laughing at a joke that like you prepared, you know, you spent months, sometimes even like, yeah, several months trying to craft it, your little five minute set, right? And then the whole, you know, from, from four minute 50, no one laughs. And that last 10 seconds, you get a huge laugh. You're like, okay, there's something here. Yeah. Uh, I started comedy like a year ago. I actually wasn't even really like that motivated to do it initially. So I was out here with my girlfriend in Vietnam and we went to a comedy competition in Saigon. And that was the first time I saw, yeah, it was my first time seeing comedy in Vietnam. And I thought everyone was so funny and it was so inviting and everyone was so welcoming. And I met MK, who's a local comedian here. And she was just like, I host an open mic. You can come out, check it out. No pressure. It's like one of those interactive open mics where, you know, there's audience participation. She provides questions and then you get to come up. So I was like, why not? You know, and then my girlfriend at the time, she was just like, Matt, you just, you know, like, it seems like you want to do it, but you're, you're scared. You know, don't be a bitch. Like, just go and, you know, yeah, just go and, and see what it's all about. Right. So for a whole month, I, I went and I didn't go up on stage. I was just watching everyone, you know, try out new material and stuff. But what was great about her open mic was that because of the audience participation portion of it, I was able to flex a little bit. You know, see what I'm able to offer in a very low, low effort way, right? Like no commitment. And, you know, she does prizes and stuff. And yeah, she was just like, man, you're funny. Like, you know, every time you come up and you put your hat in the bag or whatever, like it works. People like it. They laugh and they vote yes on your stuff all the time. Just go up there, do a five minute set. So that's kind of all it took. And then I was just like, all right, fine, I'll do it. And then not only that, but like my girlfriend went up and she had like nothing. And she crushed. She, all she did was just make fun of me and my penis. Like, <laughs> so I was like, okay, if she can do it, can do it. You know, there's, there's no way that I'm going to have her get all the laughs about my penis. This is bullshit. So I, I did a little five minutes. It, it's terrible. You know, your, your first time, right? But I, I remember I had a distinct bit where I was talking about an anti-vaxxer talking about all this shit and then like their wife died in the Facebook post and I was like but you know what I would never talk shit in their face I respect my father <laughs> and that was it and then like I got a big laugh and I was like okay there's something here you know and I just kept practicing and practicing and yeah I mean now, now I'm here a year later yeah I mean yeah. I think I've not just seen this I think one of the funniest comedians that we've got here you've been absolutely killing it love watching you on stage you're just really funny real natural you got some great jokes and you have some self-deprecating jokes you know we talk about how you look like Ho Chi Minh and like I, I told Matt when I, I just came back from a, a trip away and across the way there was a picture on the wall of Ho Chi Minh and I was going to take a picture send it to Matt and be like stop following me around <laughs> But so how long had you been wanting to do comedy before you finally like got up to do it? Wow. That's a good question. I would say I've always been interested in comedy. Like my first favorite comedy movie was Young Frankenstein. And then I watched all of, what's his name? Mel Brooks. Yeah. Mel Brooks is director, right? I, and I watched every movie after that. So I watched, you know, Frankenstein and then Blazing Saddles and then Spaceballs, right? And I was just like, this is great. And I was 14 at the time. And then from there, I, I got involved with like, oh, my mom wanted to really watch this Robin Williams stand-up special. I remember it was like one of those HBO specials. And I sat there as like a 14-year-old with my parents watching this. And I was like, I can't believe this is a job. <laughs> like, this is amazing. And, you know, he's also like an established actor, uh, a comedian actor as well. So him going on stage and just acting a fool and getting huge praise and huge laughter. And I must have watched that special like three dozen times after. And that was kind of like that little seed that, that dropped in my head. And then ever since then, I've gone to comedy shows, any new special that comes up, I'm like trying to get my hands on it. And then from there, I was just like, but, you know, in my head, being in LA, I was like, there's no way, like, I can't possibly do this, you know? It seems like it's such a, it was such a far away hobby, let alone like a career, just because in LA, everything's so spread apart. And if I wanted to go to one open mic or I wanted to go to another one, I'm spending like an hour just to get there. So it just wasn't feasible, you know, and it's expensive living out there. And that's one of my favorite SNL skits, which we were talking about before the Californian, <laughs> Californians. 
I gotta go down Cabrera and get on the 101 and they just talk about the traffic and then you know when I spoke to Californians they're like no no that's like that's all we talk about in California is the traffic it's surprisingly accurate <laughs> yeah and I guess that makes sense of what you're saying I didn't think about the distance between open mics because this is the difference in New York right I hear about people you can go do three four open mics in one night and I guess yeah New York that's so easy to jump between them but I never started doing comedy till I came to Saigon as well. It's really? Just, yeah, no, I'd wanted to do it for seven years. Wow. I'd lived in New Zealand. I told this story before, if anyone's a regular listener, that I would go to open mics with my notes in my pocket and wouldn't get up, just couldn't do it. That's why that post I just read was, it was such a big deal. And even here in Saigon, I would go to open mics with my notes in my pocket and still not get up and do it. And then eventually... Eventually I didn't have been doing it since, but this is one of the amazing things about Saigon is the opportunity that is here for people like yourselves. It's... No, you're right. I, I would say being out here, and I think this is one of the reasons why I love coming back every time is because if you always dreamed of doing anything, I feel like Vietnam really gives you the space to do it. You know, whether it's comedy or you want to make clothes or you want to start a bakery or you want to do some pop-up. There's a community out here, both local and expat, that would make it happen for you. And I think that's really beautiful versus sometimes parts of, you know, at least back in America, parts of parts of the city, parts of LA, there's so much regulation or that there's so much competition and there's a lot of pettiness that comes with you trying to do something and it's expensive as well. You know what I mean? Like there's just so much logistics mentally that you have to like hop over. Whereas out here, if you have, you know, a hundred dollars and you know, you have a motorbike, put a cart on that and then just start selling by these. Yeah. It's a much more entrepreneurial spirit, right? Mm -hmm. it's, I'm just thinking as, as, as I was think as I was talking there, it's, is it sad that it takes having to come to Vietnam as someone, yourself and myself, from another country? Why couldn't we do that in our own country? Why does it take coming to Vietnam? But I think that's what makes Vietnam so special. But I'm also concerned about having that thought that, well, why do we need to come here to do that? And I don't want to then talk down of the people that live here that like, so what, we can just come over here and do this in their country? Mm, that's true. That's true. There is that. And then... I do battle with this mentally in terms of being very aware of my privileges coming from another country, having an American passport and being able to do what I can do out here versus, yeah, locals, they do have a more challenging time mm. trying to, you know, pursue these things. And I guess I'm still trying to grapple with that. That's a tough thing to really consider. And I think the biggest thing, if you... If you are going to come out here and pursue stuff, you want to try to lift all boats, mm. right? So whether it's a small community of comedians or anything else, any other small community, you know, bring on locals, bring on the diversity, and then try to lift all boats. Try to help out as much as you can where you can. Yeah, I'm just trying to reconcile that in my head. But I mean, I, I guess the difference is I didn't come out here with the intention of becoming a comedian or doing podcast or any of this stuff you know i just came out here for Same. a short time you know so you've got to do then you come here and then suddenly there's all this opportunity so it's not like you came here with the intention of i'm going to go there and take advantage of the cost of living or i'm going to go there and take advantage of a smaller market or less competition right it, i definitely didn't come here with bad faith or with like an, an intention to necessarily exploit anything right but I would say the environment that you come from and then the environment that you decide to live in, which is, you know, here in Saigon. And the reason why I decided to stay here was I did a 10-day trip here, like back in 2017. And I thought, oh, Vietnam, I don't know. I don't hear much about it. I've traveled to Thailand. I've traveled to the Philippines. And I'm like, okay, this is like another part of the Southeast Asia tour. I landed in Vietnam and it just felt different immediately. I felt this energy in the air in Saigon, right? You know, yeah. And then, I, you know, anyone who, who, who's been here for a long time, they, they know that it's still there. And it does breathe this like feeling of like, I can do so much while I'm here. Yeah, you're making me feel better now because for a second there, as we were talking, I was like, I might be like uh, privileged, like you mentioned, am I taking advantage that you come here? But then I'm like, well, no, I didn't come here with the intention. And exactly like you said, that, this comes up again and again in conversation and on this podcast. There's just something about Vietnam. That's why I started this podcast because 
And, and, and it was originally a Saigon podcast because you land in Saigon and there's this crazy energy, it's this bustling city. Even now, you know, I'm about to turn 40. I can't believe the energy that I have. I'm out every night. I'm up late, up early, doing stuff all the time. I'm never tired. And I'm like, if I was living in New Zealand where I was before, it's cold, gets dark early, gets light late. So you're cold and miserable and tired. You've got to drag yourself to the gym after work because it's like, it's dark and it's cold. Didn't stay out late. During the week, you just work. It's here. It's the weather. I think for one, there's this energy about the city that you're just like, I'm just, I'm so energetic. I don't know where it comes from. And it was, I've always been energetic, but here it's like, sometimes I'm like, Neil, you're nearly 40. How have you got the energy to do this? But I think you just feed off of Saigon and same with, as well, you said, we'd been to Indonesia, we'd done Thailand and Malaysia, and then we came to Vietnam for six weeks and six years later, we're still here. Yeah. Yeah. We also did similar to you. We did a, a two week trip in 2016. We were just on vacation and yeah, we just fell in love with the place. It's just, there's something about it. And so many mm -hmm. people you talk to, nearly every expat you meet here, you're like, they came for a vacation. They came for a short time and then just didn't leave. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, this is maybe my observation, but you're 40 and then we have, oh, whoa, whoa, I'm 39. Oh, it was nearly 40. I'm only going to hear this. Two point. more weeks to go. All right. All right. Calm down. <laughs> and then, you know, our friend JK, he just turned 50. You guys are the best looking, like almost 40 and now 50 year olds. Like there's, there's something in the food here. There's something that just keeps people like stress-free, young looking. Well, I don't know about the stress-free. <laughs> this is the most stressful country in the world. But yeah. It's like a good stress though. It's not a... Yeah. Yeah, back at home, I'm talking with friends and everything, and their their stresses are financial, their stresses of uncertainties, right? Whereas the stress here is like, how can I juggle so many opportunities at once? That's a good stress to have. I was thinking more the stress, you know, my story of recently having my phone robbed and then trying to report the crime and not being allowed into the police station because I had shots on. Things like, that still riles me up. Like, I know I make a joke about it on stage, but like, I just get riled up. I'm like, I wasn't allowed in the police. So for anyone who doesn't know the story, I recently had my phone robbed. I got pickpocketed. And then I went to the police station at midday. It was 40 degrees out. I was wearing a pair of shorts and the guard wouldn't let me in the police station because I had shorts on. And that still, it just angers me. I'm like, the, the, the police are meant to be there to help you. I couldn't report a crime because I had shorts on. Not with those shorts on. No. Mm -hmm. And then recently as well, having to do some paperwork to renew our visas, had to submit documentation to the police. The person who was helping us called up the next day to find out if it had been finished. She'd handed it in the day before. When she called to ask if it was ready, they told her they'd lost the paperwork. Wow. And could we resubmit it? And this had been weeks in the making, trying to get documentation done, things like that. So in terms of stress, there's different stresses here. That's fair. That's yeah. fair. And I guess I don't have that particular stress. I have family who are Vietnamese, so I have a, a different visa that doesn't have those issues, right? Um, what visa yeah. are you on? I'm on the exempt visa. It's like a five-year exempt visa because my family's from Vietnam, so. Well, let's talk about that then. So you're first-generation Vietnamese-American. Tell us about your parents, your family. Sure, yeah family are refugees from Vietnam during the war and they resided in California during that time. Both my parents are from Vietnam. My mom was born in Vietnam, but her family is actually from China. From what I recall from my family history, my grandpa was very much against communism. And during the Chinese revolution, Mao was in power. He was moving further and further south from China and then cross the border into Vietnam. And my grandpa was a gangster. Like this guy would forge documents, would create fake identity cards. And we still have like a briefcase, you know, rest in peace, grandpa. But we still have one of his briefcases where you just see all the fake documents that he had. Yeah. Just to get the whole family over. And during the time it was my grandpa, my grandma, and like three other kids, right? So you're thinking like five people that he has to forge documents and, and create fake IDs just to get through from China to Vietnam. And then from Vietnam, as communism continued spreading from the top of Vietnam down, he just went further and further south to the point where they land, they stayed in Phu Quoc, which is an island on the tip of Vietnam. And that's where my mom was born. 
And then when Saigon fell, then they just left. And I mean, that's a whole story within itself. But do you know how they left? Do you know the story from there? Yeah, there were also boat refugees. One of the crazy things was my oldest uncle, my Juhai. He was like an entrepreneurial kid growing up. And during the time, in amidst of war, he's still trying to sell cigarettes. And he's like bartering and like making deals and stuff. But my family was on one boat and he's like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hop to a few boats to kind of make some money. And he goes off and does that. And then he doesn't realize that my family's boat is starting to leave. And he ends up on a completely different boat. And he gets stuck in a Thailand refugee camp where my family, I believe, was in Hong Kong at the time. And they had to stay in Hong Kong and was sending letters to all the refugee camps to try to find where my uncle was at. And my uncle at the time, he was like 10, 10, 12 years old. So imagine like a 12-year-old kid, no family, just stuck somewhere in a foreign country. And, you know, in the midst of war. And thankfully, they found him. And then from there, they were able to get out of some sponsorship and then they came to California, so. And have your family spoken to you much about that experience? Mm, That's a good question. I think for a lot of the, like the Vietnamese diaspora, we're very much aware that it's very hard for them to talk about this stuff. And this is like from second account where like my brother was talking to my uncle, for example. And as my uncle is explaining his story, he just starts crying. And this is the first time like he's ever seen my eldest uncle cry in front of anybody. It's still traumatizing. I think that kind of trauma is really hard for them to want to speak about because the Vietnamese are resilient people. At the end of the day, they go, all right, something fucked up happened, but we got to move forward. We got to move on. We got to progress. And as poor immigrants, they've worked really, really hard. And I look at my uncle and I look at that side of the family and I go, man, you've done a lot and you've built up this family, built up your own wealth and has become rather successful back in California. So yeah, that's, that's kind of like that story on that side. And then on my dad's side, that part is also quite fuzzy, but same concept. They were boat people as well. And his whole story was like, the boat was like a ratty tatty boat. As they're coming to Hong Kong, midway through, the boat had a huge hole in it. So everyone had to constantly just, you know, put buckets and participate in like, you know, dumping water out of the boat. And he just remembers like everyone being seasick. And as the boat was moving back and forth, he just watched like, there's no bathrooms, right? So he'll watch urine and shit just like go back and forth on the boat. And that's a lot to have to deal with as a kid. So yeah, that was his experience on the boat. Then they arrived to Hong Kong and they got sponsored to be in Chicago. Apparently, it was like a nice old couple that sponsored him. And I remember he told me as he's older now, he wishes that he knew who they were so he can go and thank them. It's really quite interesting, like the generosity of people that don't even know who you are and just sees the issues, right? That's happening across the world and go, I want to help. So whoever they are, thank you. You know, I wouldn't be here today. So that would be incredible to meet them. Yeah. It's something that, as I mentioned to you before, it's come up a lot on this podcast recently. It's been really fascinating to me because it's something I had no knowledge of prior to living here, prior to doing this podcast. Anyone listening, go back and listen to the episode with Unin Nguyen, who escaped on the, the final day in Saigon in 1975 as a five-year-old with her family, ended up in a refugee camp in Hong Kong. Horrible, horrible story. Beautiful person, so happy, lovely, willing to talk about it, but like tragic, tragic story. And then the other one I would recommend, go back and listen to the one with Tracy Nguyen Meng. And this is one I would recommend for you as well. She started a podcast called the Vietnamese Boat People Podcast. And she's explained to me and then she's explained on her podcast. So what happened in her case was similar to you, similar to the Vietnamese diaspora across the world. She wanted to know her dad's story because she knew little bits like from overhearing things, but didn't know much about it. And so one day she drove to her dad's house with a microphone and just talked to him six hours and found out all the stuff that she didn't know about and that then ended up becoming the first episode of the podcast not six hours she distills it down into a story it's an amazing podcast Mm -hmm. and now she interviews people from around the world in america as well obviously she's based there but interviews people from around the world and she's now started a foundation the vietnamese boat people foundation and it's now a charity and they're collecting stories now 
because there are so many, it's not just interviewing people on the podcast, they're getting people to submit their own stories and then they're collecting them online and basically collecting like a database of all these stories from across the world, because it is something that's not being shared and for the obvious reasons that it's, it's so tragic and mm -hmm. hard to share. So anyone listening and for yourself, go check out the Vietnamese Boat People podcast. We talk about it quite a lot. Uh, and Tracy was on this show and she was so interesting, such an interesting story. Yeah, that's so, great. So what do you know then about when your family arrived in America and then what happened next? I guess I have to think about it a little mm -hmm. bit. Yeah. And this is where it can get quite fuzzy, right? I'm not the best account for my family's history. But I do remember that though they were having rough times and it was kind of tough for them. From the pictures growing up, seeing my dad being younger and then all my uncles and aunts like growing up in high school there in California, they had a pretty normal, like I wouldn't say normal. <laughs> describe it yeah, yeah yeah at least to me it just seemed like okay they were young people too and how old were they when they came here how old was your dad my dad was oh, came here came there <laughs> yeah yeah my dad came to the states probably when he was like seven or eight yeah and from chicago they moved to california and they resided in a small little town called rosemead and they had what seven kids and the two parents and everyone's like sharing rooms and stuff. So it was a very packed house. And my dad would tell me stories. He'll tell this one particular story that I, I won't forget. I'm eating with him, right? And I'm eating slow and he's already done eating. And he says, you know, when I grew up, you couldn't eat slow. Everyone else would just come and just take everything on the table before you can even manage a plate. So he's like, you're lucky. You know, that's where a lot of that, that struggle competition, that concept of like, who's had it worse, who's had it better dynamic comes from, I think a lot of generational Vietnamese and anyone that comes from an immigrant family really can know that experience. Yeah. And so what was it like then for you growing up? Were there many Vietnamese people where you lived? Was there a big community? There were, but for me, my family was a bit of a, hmm. It's, it, it was quite strange because even though I knew I was Vietnamese, I grew up more Chinese. I was around a more Chinese community, I would say. I grew up in a big Taiwanese community where, yeah, there wasn't a lot of people speaking Vietnamese. And I actually found myself trying to fit in with the Chinese kids, the Taiwanese kids, even though I don't know the language and I don't really know the culture that well. So I learned a lot from my friends that way. But yeah, back at home, my family were very much trying to be as American as possible. Like when I was very young, they spoke to me in Chinese when I was maybe up to two years old. And then from there, they're like, he's going to preschool. We don't want kids to make fun of him. We're just going to speak to him in English now. And from that point on, it's only English in the household. Whereas my cousins and my friends, they are the mouthpiece for their parents. And they can have that dual language experience growing up, which I didn't have. So I felt left out in that sense as well, where I would come to even like my cousin's house or another friend who happens to be Vietnamese. And I talk to the parents and they're like, you don't speak. And then they just look at me with such shame. You know, it's, I, I can laugh at it now, but then I was just like, why, why am I getting punished for something that like, I'm not responsible for? I don't understand how I could learn when no one's teaching me. And what, there was no like big internet thing at the time where I could just go and find Duolingo, you know, like that wasn't, that wasn't available. So it was quite an interesting experience growing up and knowing that there are people that has the ability to speak to their parents and not only that speak to their parents, but speak to like their grandparents and have real relationship with their grandparents. I've always felt like being in my family and with my extended family, I just felt so much of an outsider, even though we're blood related, I'd see my grandpa. And I'd say hi, and he'd just nod and maybe like pat my head. That was it. That's as much of an interaction I'll ever have with my grandparents. And uh, yeah, and something about that's like, there is that sadness, but also I think an understanding of just like, I just didn't grow up that way. So, but you know, I still love you and I want to find ways to connect in other ways. And food has always been a big connector with family. So we ate a lot. <laughs> And so what was there? You're eating lots of Vietnamese food, like home cooking food? Home cooking food. Oh, yeah. 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 Come gà, come tham. And my, my grandpa, oh no, my grandma makes great bun sale. So 
That's one of my favorites. So now coming to Vietnam, how does the food compare? Do you still like, is your mom's cooking, your family <laughs> cooking? Is that the best? Are you like out eating? You're like, no, that's no good. No, food here is amazing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My mom does make a good boon ryu. So, cause she uses like big chunky crab meat and we go decadent with it. Whereas out here it's street food. So, you know, it's a dollar bowl and you, you, you expect a good dollar bowl. But no, I, I mean, other than that, I mean, Vietnamese food is top tier. I, I can't imagine going anywhere else and just having the same feeling that I have eating Vietnamese food. I'm just like, oh man, this is home. It just feels so good eating Vietnamese food in Vietnam. So do you get that feeling because you just mentioned they're like, this is home. Is mm -hmm. that, does it really have that strong emotional connection? It does. It does. Because I remember, so my parents divorced. And then every time I'd go and visit my dad during the weekends, he would take us to pho restaurants or like go get gum soon or gum tam. And I just remember, man, this is, it's always a staple. You know, I see my dad, I'm getting Vietnamese food. And it just felt like it's a, it's a, again, food is just a great connector, a connector, connector of memories, connector with people. And so coming here and eating food that I obviously recognize, but then also knowing that it's where I'm eating it in its origin place, it's special. Mm. I did, I've fallen in love again with Vietnamese food recently. Obviously always loved it since I first tried it, but I think probably took it for granted. And then recently it's just been like eating everything and anything I can again. And it's just like, oh my God, I forgot how... We were just talking about it just a couple of days ago. Like, we're just so spoiled. All of it's so good. Like, you know, we've been just come up back from uh, from Hoi An and Da Nang. So we're eating like Mi Wang every day. And uh, what's the one? Kao Lao, which is the one from like specifically from Hoi An. Have you tried that? Kao Lao? I might have. Yeah. It's like Chinese kind of like Chinese pork, uh, like char siu. And then the noodles are made. I read this thing on the wall, like made from the ash of trees i guess on like uh charm island which is off of hoi an right. and it's specifically made using the water from the well in hoi an wow so if you get it outside of hoi an it's not technically cao lao okay and it's we were eating that and me wang every day and then in, here in saigon the cal of come tam and mm -hmm. and me obviously but then lately we've tried like uh oh not tried had again and baka mm. um so i know right so it's just yeah. like and then uh, what's the other one we just had is um Buncha. Yeah. And then I had recently Buncha Hanoi, which mm. I love as well. And she was just eating all this food. And I was saying to Adria, I was like, you do not get bad Vietnamese food. There might be some that you don't like. There's some Vietnamese food that I just personally don't like. But I've never had a Vietnamese, a meal of Vietnamese food. I mean, like, oh, I don't like this. Mm. Oh, no, sorry. Not that I don't like this. I've never had a meal of Vietnamese food. I mean, like, oh, that's, that's bad. Like, that's bad food. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And the thing is, like, Vietnamese food is so diverse. and But you don't get that level of diversity outside of Vietnam. You don't get the, yeah, what you said, like, bún cha and bang and the, even, like, hú tiêu. Like, none of those things really exist outside of Vietnam, but Vietnam. Even their little, like, street taco pancake thing that they make. You know what I'm talking about with yeah. the cheese and everything. That's yeah. so uniquely Saigon, so uniquely Vietnamese. You say it's all different, but just remember, everything has a rice-based component. That's true. <laughs> whether it's a bun bao, which is like rice flour, right? Whether it's everything. But I, 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 I like rice, so that's all right. <laughs> just but yeah, no, the flavors are all so, so different. It's, it's amazing. So you can see why people come to Vietnam and fall in love with it because of the food. There's so many cooking shows about it, mm -hmm. so much of it. It's just such a big draw. And yeah, recently I've just fallen back in love with it. So there's the challenges of living here of not being able to report a crime because you have shots on, but then you can go down the street and get some amazing food. But the one food though that I'm not a big fan of, the one that Vietnam is known for, for... Really? I'm just not here. I've tried it several uh -huh. times. I'm just, I just think it's a, not bland. It's my least favorite Vietnamese food. That's fair. And then, you know what? That's the thing is like, when you're in Vietnam, that's okay. Because there's so much, <laughs> you have so much to love. And that one thing you don't like, it's, it's not even a big deal. And but, maybe because it's so ubiquitous, it's just like, eh. mm -hmm. what's, well, you know, it's the world famous pho. Like, you know, everyone has it all around the world. It's just like, people back at home would be like, oh, you know, you, you piece of shit. Like, how could you? But it's like, no, but I like like 99% of all the other foods. Yeah. <laughs> and again, it's not that it's bad. It's just, I, there's so many better flavors I think. But yeah. like, you know, well, on the weekend though, just up in, as I said, in Hoi An, had a pho gin and tonic. 
And it was really good. No way. Because it had like the, the green leaves, which I don't know the names of them, but you know, uh-huh. the, the green leaves that go in far. So yeah. As soon as you put your nose in the glass, it just smelled like far. You were getting those herbs and things like that. And so, yeah, that was actually a good drink, but it was far based. Yeah. That's so unique. Oh, I <laughs> Getting hungry now. So tell me then, what was it like for you growing up in California? I've heard these stories before. I understand these challenges of being brought up, not speaking the language that your parents and your family do. So how did that play out? Like, what was it like for you growing up, becoming a teenager and exploring? Don't want to be too dramatic, but like I've spoken to so many people like yourself, first generation immigrants, and it can be really challenging from what I know, trying to kind of discover yourself. Like, yeah, where's my place in the world? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, being Asian in America, it's coming to light, you know, nowadays, but back then it was not talked about. There wasn't much representation. So I had to kind of figure out where do I fit in? Where can I be militant in and where can I just shrug off and be indifferent to? But for the most part, I grew up as American as possible. But there are those challenges where at the end of the day, I look in the mirror and people look at me and they go, that is the Asian guy or he is this or he is that. There's a lot of self-imposed or not self-imposed, but there's just a lot of, how should I say, like snap judgments on who I am based on who I look already, mm. right? Just because there's not a lot of faces and there's not a lot of diversity in it. There's a guy named Eddie Huang who wrote a book called Fresh Off the Boat. And now there's that, there's that show that's you know, yeah. based off of it. But he talks about how like we need more representation in the diaspora in terms of like who who we are. Like we can we can be the grandma that wears Uggs. We can be the gangster, but we can also be the nerdy technician guy but we need more of the differences. So I didn't know this growing up, but I was very much just trying to like wear many hats and identify myself like, oh, am I a skater type? You know what I mean? Am I emo? Like, and you know, just kind of trying to figure out like, what do I like? What kind of person can I be? And, and not really worry too much about like, oh, who I am as an Asian. And that is the one thing in America that I do like is that if you find like a group of friends and if you're in a community that's accepting enough, then the last thing they really care about is, oh, what ethnicity are you? They're like, oh, what do you like? You know, what kind of person are you? And as far as like growing up with my family, I would say it's pretty common for an American family to have like a divorce in the family and having to go back and forth between parents. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how else to answer that. So did you come to Vietnam much as a child? Did your family come back and visit? No. So that's actually a really good thing that you brought up. Throughout my whole childhood, my dad chastised Vietnam. Yeah. He was like, I'm never going back. That place abandoned the people. So there's no reason for me to ever go back. I don't recommend you ever going back. You know, your life is here. The opportunities are here in America. And I've heard this all throughout my childhood, all throughout my adulthood. So no, we never came to Vietnam. No one had any interest to ever come visit. The only person that actually went to Vietnam in my family and came back with good news and made me change some of my conditioning was my oldest cousin. She's a movie producer and she made a movie out here in Vietnam. I think it's called like Saigon Oi, which is like a breakdancing uh, Vietnamese movie. And when she was out here, she was explaining to me how that energy, right? And, but you know, I had no reference, so I couldn't quite understand until I did come out here. But she was the only person that was like saying how good Vietnam is now. It's getting better. There's this energy. It's a young vibe. And I just remember all my older aunts and uncles just chastising her, saying like, you know, don't bring this into this house. Don't talk good about Vietnam. What the fuck is wrong with you? All this stuff. And she's just like, forget it. I'm going to talk to the little cousins. You know, these are the people that I can shape. (laughs) These are the people that I can indoctrinate. But yeah, she explained that to me. And I was just like, oh, okay, that's interesting. She's like, yeah, if you ever go, I have all these recommendations. I can tell you about everything. I'm like, okay, great. But this was like 10 years before I even touched down to Vietnam my first time. So, you know, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds fine. Sounds fine. But that was it. Other than that, like, yeah, no one ever spoke about Vietnam. Matter of fact, like, they're like, they're like saying you should come to Hong Kong instead. Again, growing up more Chinese and watching a lot of like Hong Kong style movies, they're, you know, my, my heart was wanting to go to Hong Kong. I romanticized it so much growing up. But yeah, but coming to Vietnam, being here now, I'm just like, oh man, like 
the, the romanticizing is now here in Saigon versus, versus over there, especially now, especially now. Well, what was that conditioning like you growing up? So what was your opinion of Vietnam? My opinion of Vietnam growing up was that it's a developing country, has probably more third world tendencies. So dirt roads, maybe people still riding bicycles and wearing the cone hats, the rice hats, and just not a lot of infrastructure. Really, that was my thought, you know. And granted, it probably was accurate. I was going to say, it's pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, more in terms of like you're seeing your parents, your family are telling you like the reasons not to go. So in your mind, not mm -hmm. just like what was it physically like, in your mind, what was your opinion? What did you think of Vietnam in terms of a country, you know? Yeah, like I just thought it was maybe some sort of dictatorish communist country, not a lot going on, still being rebuilt from after the war and again not that far off <laughs> <laughs> because we've talked i've talked to other guests you know tam lay whose family were from houston big uh -huh. enemies population in houston oh yeah and when she decided to come back here her i think it was her maybe nimai sorry if i forget i'm getting your story wrong because we're in season nine spoken to a lot of people <laughs> trying to remember every episode but they're all such fascinating stories but yeah their family whoever it was i spoke to anyway sorry their family didn't want them to come because mm. they thought, you know, still, you're going to get put in a camp. You're going to get locked up. The family didn't ever want to come back because they just knew Vietnam 1975 and didn't know how it had progressed. So that's kind of more I was asking about, well, did you have that similar opinion? Did your family have that same? No, no, they didn't. They didn't have that opinion. And maybe because they just didn't talk about it. And, oh, I guess this is, this is <laughs> kind of going back to my family. My grandpa on my dad's side, he's actually a POW. Yeah, he fought for the South and then he got caught in the North and it took him, I think, a couple of years before he was able to get let out and then come to America. But my grandpa was very fluent in French and in Chinese and in Vietnamese. And yeah, so a lot of a lot of their fears, I think, maybe stemmed from the fact that my grandpa was captured and was tortured. And he doesn't talk about it to this day. I remember I was talking to my oldest cousin and she tried to get some stories out of him and he would just sit there silently and just cry and not mention anything after. So it's very tough, obviously. And I can understand why they wouldn't want people to come back just because of how much damage they've done to people. Like I know even during re reunification day out here, it's a huge celebration, but back at home on reunification day, they're waving the Southern flag. Yeah. And they're trying to, you know, they want to point at the atrocities that happened during that time. Mm -hmm. And I can understand that. But again, the Vietnamese, the resilient, they want to move forward and they want to better the lives overall. And the whole reasoning behind the war, I think ultimately is understandable in hindsight, why they had to do it why it came down to that point. So, but yeah, as far as like, and by the way, this, these are things that I had to learn on my own. You know, this is something that I wasn't able to pick up from my family because they were in that mindset of never going back. America is my home now. I'm going to make this opportunity as best as possible here. Mm. Yeah. So what made you come here then? The first time was just on a whim. Yeah. I was at a business conference in Thailand and a buddy of mine was just like want to do 10 days in Vietnam I don't want to go back home yet and I just want to just check it out and that and then you know I'm, I'm pretty adventurous and I said why not not knowing what to expect and the whole time I was just thinking like we're gonna we're gonna drop down it's gonna be dirt roads it's gonna be like pots clanging on the sides of water buffaloes just walking down the street okay not that it's <laughs> <laughs> where you are that's where you are yeah. And then so, but when we landed and, you know, thankfully I landed in Saigon. If I landed somewhere else in Vietnam, it, yeah, it would have been a very different story. And then going back to that feeling of like dropping in nightlife happening, like right when I entered and I was just like, oh, this is different, you know, blew my mind, had no expectations. But then being there, right, in those 10 days, I was having this feeling of like, I need to reconnect somehow because... I had no interest in this place. And then the moment I'm here, all of a sudden, like this feeling inside me was knocking. And it was just like, there's more here about who you are as someone that 
came from family of Vietnamese refugees. And I can try to find a way to make amends, you know what I mean, for my family and and really just understand it from even outside of them too. Because there are people here that are just as old as my uncles, as just as old as my aunt, who didn't leave Vietnam. And I see these people who look like them, but are having a good life too and have their own family as well. And it was bad during the time, but 20 years later, it's almost equaled out. Yeah. And that was a very eye-opening experience seeing that there are people like Vietnam has come back in a way where the, the people are much better off. You know, I remember when I was in the Philippines and I'd go to not, not like a super nice restaurant, but just like nice restaurants all throughout Manila. And the same thing with like Bali, Indonesia. And I just remembered like it would be 70% foreigners or like 70% expats, you know, sometimes 100% expats. And the wait staff are the only people that are locals. And then coming to Vietnam, it was the first time I ever felt like I can go to a nice establishment and it's like 50% Vietnamese, sometimes even 100% Vietnamese, you know? And I was like, wow, like the Vietnamese are coming up and they take care of their own. And there's something like, I truly feel like now I am visiting someone else's country as opposed to like coming to Manila or coming to Bali. And I feel like, oh, they're catering to me. No, they're catering to them. Right. That was like the one thing that I really wanted coming to Vietnam and they really brought it and it made me feel so good about being Vietnamese all of a sudden. And I was like, okay, I almost feel like I'm like a bandwagoner. <laughs> like Vietnam is still a shithole. Like I feel like, oh yeah, fuck Vietnam. But no, I mean, the, but the truth is it's not. And the thing is like, it's still eye-opening. And I did go visit parts of Northern Vietnam where it was those things that I've envisioned. And I thought it would be a bad thing, but it ended up being such a beautiful thing, like the Haijiang Lu, going in and seeing those villages out there. And I go, okay, like this country has so much, so much diversity in terms of how you live, where you live, how your lifestyle is. And, you know, people out there are happy too. It's not like they're being depressed living the, those lives out there. They're generally just very happy people. So, yeah, that was eye-opening. And what has been the reaction that you've found to you being first-generation Vietnamese-American. Do you identify as VQ? Because I know for some people, they don't like that term, and then for other people, they embrace it. And I know it, it has different definitions, and it can be contentious. Do you use that phrase? And then how has the reaction been to you in Vietnam? I had an argument with a Canadian guy saying that I'm not VQ. And, and was he Vietnamese-Canadian? He's also Vietnamese-Canadian, and he considers himself VQ. And I guess the, the real definition is that you're born in this country, and then you left and then you were raised like in another country and then you came back. That's like the, I guess the technical definition, but I didn't know that. So the whole time I was calling myself a VQ in reality, I guess that's not the case. So no, I mean, I don't try to like have that label on me. I'm very much when they ask me where I'm from, like my grab driver or whatever, I just tell them I'm American mm -hmm. and they always give me that look like you American. No way. Are you Korean? Are you Japanese? Like, what are you? What are you really? And I'm like, oh, I get it here too. Okay. <laughs> I was going to ask earlier, how many different Asian races have you been mistaken for? Oh, I get the gamut, man. I get... <laughs> even from Vietnamese people. Oh, yeah, even from Vietnamese people. You spin the wheel and yeah. I get all of them. Just because I do have this look. I think I'm not particularly like super Vietnamese looking. And wherever I'm at, whether I'm in Thailand or in the Philippines, they'll, they'll consider me one of their own. Yeah. But a lot of, recently I've been getting Japanese a lot because of my, because of my mustache. Yeah. So do you speak any Vietnamese yet? Joop, joop. <laughs> so that means as much as me. <laughs> That's my answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I knew none coming here. And then, so I took a class, shout out to VES. I did it for eight months. So I know enough. I know enough to get around. I would consider myself like I can speak it well enough. I get the tones and I can get the accent down pretty well. I'm a pretty good parrot, but I have a hard time hearing. Oh, I, thought, I, was, I thought it might have been the, the opposite because maybe you've been, because you've been brought up around hearing it, but right. you would hear it more easily. And again, like I grew up where like only on my dad's side where they spoke Vietnamese, but I grew up closer with my mom's side of the family and they all spoke Chinese. So I can understand Chinese much better actually. Yeah. But yeah, Vietnamese, I'm still having a hard time understanding. And a lot of the locals here that do speak English, they tell me, yeah, they have a hard time too. You know, it's just because the South just has more accents and more slang as well. And they just kind of like mash words together when they speak. 
So it's hard as well. Up in the North is more homogenized. You actually can like understand the words much better in the North, but they also have that Northern accent, which is, I think, the inferior accent. No, I mean, I've talked about it a lot on this podcast. I try not to repeat myself too much, but yeah, being here six years, still don't speak the language. Various reasons for that. The biggest one is I never thought I was going to be here this long. Mm. So you never really made the effort to learn because I never thought I was staying. Now I want to learn. I'm like, kind of like, maybe I should take lessons. But then I get really disheartened when I hear like you say you did it for eight months and you still can't do it well. I spoke to someone else just recently, like they did lessons and they're like, it, it, it's just, I'm like, it can't be that difficult. Surely I can learn. But your Vietnamese background and you still find it difficult. And I couldn't even learn French or Spanish, which is like an easier language. So that really like disheartens me because I'm like, what's the point? I'm not going to be able to learn this language or speak it. And even sometimes recently, I've because I kind of, really bad, but I zone out when I hear someone speaking Vietnamese because I can't understand it, right? And recently I've kind of like tried to zone in and be like, okay, just see if you can like pick up the words. I can't pick up anything. Like I can't pick up even where a word starts or finishes. And I think we were just talking about that comedian, Joe Coy, and he's Filipino American and he makes fun of all the Asian accents or Asian people. And he says about Vietnamese, it sounds like there's a full stop after every word. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what it's like. Yeah, I would say don't give up. Because here's the thing, I'm going to go back to class. And I'm going to try to learn. Because I'm at a point now where I could do that. I actually could pick up a few words. And right now, the thing is like my vocabulary is terrible. Whereas my fiance's vocabulary is great. She's also learning Vietnamese too. And even though tonally she can't really speak it, she can understand it more. So I'm like, okay, like I just got to keep going. I think uh, same with comedy, right? Like you have to just put in the effort, put in the work, pay your dues, look like a fool in front of other Vietnamese people. But, you know, I'm determined. I, I used to be so insecure about speaking uh, my mother language back at home. Uh, and it's pretty normal where like your parents tells you to say something to like an older family member and you just, I'm just repeating, right? I'm just a parrot. And I was so insecure about it because like, I'm like, oh man, I'm going to embarrass myself because they'd laugh at me every single time. You know, but I'm older now. I have a thick skin. Like, laugh at me now, bitch. Laugh at me now. I'm trying. Yeah, so I'm going back, man. I think it's, and maybe it's an American mentality thing. Like, I don't want to be the hypocrite to, like, go into someone else's country and not learn the language, mm -hmm. right? Where everyone's like, oh, speak English, you know, when they're in America. Like, I'm like, yeah, you could, but, and now I'm here. I'm like, oh, no, I need to learn Vietnamese. Yeah, I mean, and that's, like I said, I never planned to be here this long. Mm -hmm. But now we're, I'm at the point where... I, I don't see myself leaving anytime soon. I don't think I'll be here forever, but I don't see myself leaving anytime soon. So now it's kind of like that excuse of I'm not going to be here for that long mm. doesn't really exist. So I should make the effort. And also as well, like you said, when people ask you, oh, do you speak the language when they hear that you live here? It's getting quite embarrassing to be like, no. Like I remember when I first came here and you met someone who'd been here for like 10, 20 years and you'd be like, oh, you speak Vietnamese? They're like, no. You'd be like, what? No, I'm that person. So it's kind of like, I got to change that. So let's finish up with the final questions that I ask everyone on this season and the guest hosts have been asking as well. Thank you very much. This has been awesome. Really enjoyed it. So number one, what one reason would you use to persuade someone to come to Vietnam? Food. 100%. The food and just to come. Yeah, that would be the one thing I would say. If you're a foodie and you want to really have an experience with your palate, Come to Vietnam. Great one. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we've talked about it enough, definitely. <laughs> what one reason would you use to persuade someone not to come to Vietnam? The heat and humidity. Yeah. If you're very sensitive to sweating all day, every day, because you get used to it out here. Yeah, it's, it's the one thing where you're, you know, it's just part of your day, right? Or like the constant rain, it's just part of your day. So if you can't get past that, don't come. That's a good one as well. Now, what common scams have you heard of or experienced in Vietnam? I've experienced two scams my first year here. And one of them was the coconut scam out in D1, where the guy has a pole on his shoulder and then two lines holding like, you know, bunches of coconuts. And they're trying to sell me one. And I go, oh, no, I'm okay. I was with a friend at the time. And he goes, I'm finishing up my day. Like, here, I'll give you two for free. And I was like, Oh, for free? No, no, no. We'll pay you. It's like, oh, th thank you. Thank you. <laughs> $20 for two coconuts. No. Yeah. What, 460,000 dong? 
because, you know, I was in my wallet. And I was pulling out cash and he was just like, oh, 500 is okay. And I'm like, okay, 500. Yeah. Oh my God. No problem. <laughs> I had no idea. It was so easy. <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm not hell of that one. And what was the second one? The second one was the sandals guys that would try to repair your shoes. Yeah. He just spoke really good English. And <laughs> it caught me at a time where I was just chilling at a park. And he was like, can I, can I fix your shoes? And I'm like, uh, how much? It's like, don't worry about it. And then he just talked and talked and talked. I had a good conversation. And then he tried to scam me for like another 500 or something like that. I was just like, dude, no, 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 no. He was like, no, pay me, pay me. It, yeah, he was aggressive. Oh, it just changed like that. It, dude, it's, yeah, very much so. And the problem was like, I think I was in his territory. I think there were other people around like making sure that like I paid the guy. So I was like, okay. Better to do it than not, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Now, what's something, this kind of maybe links into what the conversation that we've had, but what's something that you'd heard about Vietnam that's not true? Okay, so this is actually quite different than what we talked about, is that the rudeness. I think a lot of people think within Asian countries, there's maybe some like level of rudeness or no concept of personal space, which I think more so is about China. There's definitely no concept of personal speaking. Come on, come on. I've been waiting in line and the guy behind me is like over my shoulder. I'm like, dude, why are you just wait in line one meter back? Like you don't need to be. I would say it's not as egregious out here. Right. Yeah. I've never been to China. Is okay. It it's worse. Right. Yeah. It's very terrible out there. I mean, people do not give a fuck. But out here, at least there is some, <laughs> some respect to it. So yeah, I'll say that. All right. And what question would you like to ask the next guest? Income <laughs> Does that mean lunch? <laughs> did you eat yet? Oh, did you eat yet? <laughs> <laughs> and, and last one, if Vietnam was a person, how would you describe them? If Vietnam was a person, I would just describe them as a resilient party goer. Oh yeah. Cause the Vietnamese people know how to party. Even back at home, my family members, at the end of the day, we know how to like drink, we know how to have fun, we know how to listen to music and dance and get shit done. So I think just resilient and fun party people. I love it. I love it. Perfect. All right, Matt, thank you so much for thank joining you. me on this. Uh, tell people where they can follow you on social media. Um, obviously, we can. you'll be performing shows all over Saigon, mm -hmm. um, but we are, where can they follow you and find you? Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram. My Instagram is at... Matthew Tran, but the A's are V's. That so. made me it really difficult to tag you before <laughs> I knew that. And I was trying to find you to tag you for a show and I couldn't find you. Easy. <laughs> the V is an E. The V, yeah, the V's are A. So it's M V T T H E W T R V N. <laughs> What's up? <laughs> I will put a link for that in the show notes. Well, thank you very much, Matt. And I will look forward to performing together soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Cheers. hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're like me, you may use your laptop at places where you have to use public Wi-Fi. This opens you up to digital snoopers. It's a massive problem. It can be your internet service provider, or you know who, looking at what you do online, or a cyber criminal trying to steal your bank passwords or credit card info, or even a hacker at the next table trying to steal your sensitive data. These days, it is vital that you keep your data safe. NordVPN keeps all of these snoopers away. It makes your internet activity private, protects you from accessing dangerous websites that are fishing for your data, and lets you enjoy your favorite content securely, even while away from home. And it's easy to use, even I could use it. I've actually been using NordVPN for years now here in Vietnam, and I'm excited to be an affiliate partner with them. I've used NordVPN to watch Netflix, BBC, Disney Plus with ease. And I also know that my information and data are safe from prying eyes, whoever they may be. Join now and you'll get 68% off and three months free when you go to my link, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. Just again, for those hard of hearing, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. The link is also in the show notes. I know nobody checks them out, but go check that out and you can get the link from wherever you are listening to this podcast. As an affiliate partner, 
It also means that I will get a small commission when you sign up, but at no extra cost to you. So not only will you be getting a great deal through 7 Million Bikes, you get a great VPN and you'll be supporting 7 Million Bikes podcast. Stay safe online and enjoy the shows you love. Any questions, just let me know. You know how to get in touch with me. And thanks for listening to this show. Cheers. Cheers.